Paul says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, this passage is very typical of Paul in that it is incredibly dense with ideas layered one on top of another. But also for another reason, you might have noticed this, that at the very start here where he begins by saying, for this reason I, Paul, he does not complete his thought there. And most commentators think that what he was planning to do is to write the section that begins from verse 14. If you cast your eyes down, you can see he starts in the exact same way. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's obviously dictating his letter to a kind of secretary who is writing it down word for word. And as often happens when you don't have, you know, Microsoft Word and you don't have an editing ability on the spot, um, if you're speaking orally, then you, your thoughts interrupt each other and you find yourself backtracking and correcting. And something like that happens here. His intention was to launch straight into his description of what he prays for them, knowing that the getting into the detail of what his prayer life is for them will massively encourage their souls because it is incredibly encouraging, isn't it, to know that believers are praying for you, not least an apostle like Paul. But before he can get there, and we'll, we'll get there at some point and unpack his prayer, before he can get there, it obviously just occurs to him that in order to encourage them, he needs to deal with a problem, which is the kind of elephant in the room, which is the fact that he is sat in a prison cell. So as much as he might want to encourage them by talking about his prayer life for them, the greatest source or reason for them to feel discouraged is the fact that the great leader who had founded the church was right now writing from prison and that would have been an incredibly um, disheartening thing for them to, to dwell upon. Now, even more so because of the culture and age in which he's writing. We understand that cultures have different sensibilities and you have um, uh, such thing as an honor-shame culture where um, if your honor is, is slighted in some way, shame can be quite an oppressive experience. And 
When a leader was put into prison in the early church, the great uh, risk for the early Christians was that they might experience intense shame on behalf of a leader being imprisoned. That's why in Paul's letter to Timothy, a little bit further on, 2 Timothy 1, he says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel. Don't be ashamed of the fact that I'm in prison, and don't be ashamed of the gospel. So what he's doing here, and I I just want to state all this up front, because I think you have to grasp this in order to understand the thread of this passage and its power for us today. What he's doing is he's wanting to address the greatest reason for them to feel discouraged and offer them some powerful encouragements. This is why he starts in the first verse and says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and then ends in verse 13 of that that thought where he says, I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So I take it that everything he says in between those two references to him being in prison is one long passionate argument for the reason why these Christians do not need to be discouraged. Now, before we get into this, let me just ask, why does it matter? Why does your state of heart about the future of the church and the mission of God and the gospel, why does it matter whether you're encouraged or discouraged? And I think the answer is that hope is is the most powerful fuel for the human soul. Hope is what drives endeavor. It drives passion and urgency and labor. When you believe that you are partaking in a lost cause, at some point you give in and give up, don't you? The great risk always in every generation of Christians is that they will see the onslaught of discouragements and that it will affect your faith at a very personal level. You'll begin to, to kind of question your commitment or begin to withhold your passion or withhold your energy or not give to what God is doing in the world. And all of these things are a risk for us as Christians. On the other hand, when you believe in the deepest part of you, in your very bones, that what God is doing is unstoppable, that it is mighty and that God is about something extraordinary in the world, it calls for the best of you. It draws you into the mission of God. I've seen this countless times in my life as individuals have captured a vision of the church of Jesus and what Christ is accomplishing in the world. They begin to feel themselves stirred to give and to commit and to labor and to share the gospel and to be invested in a deep way. And that's a very human reaction, isn't it? We are not desiring to be part of something that is ultimately going to fail. Now, for them, the discouragement that he addresses here is the fact that he sat in prison. And uh, that's something hard for us to identify with because the likelihood that any of us as pastors will be imprisoned is very small. Unless we do something illegal, of course, which could happen, but you never know. Rather, the reasons for discouragement in our day and age are, are different, but they are just as powerful and just as plenty. I think about the wide-scale um, abandonment of the faith in our nation and the fact that every year a diminishing number of people or percentage of the population wants to describe themselves as believing in God at all and an even smaller number 
would self-identify as, as being Christ followers. I think also about the, the hostile kind of culture or climate that we're in. I think that obviously when Britain was described as broadly a Christian nation, uh, you were moving with the grain, weren't you? If, you? if you upheld the Christian ethic and you preached about Jesus, it wasn't that you wouldn't re- meet resistance in many quarters, but generally speaking, you were moving with the grain. That's increasingly um, opposite to our experience, isn't it? We're increasingly finding ourselves as Christians um, facing a, a hostile, frosty, cold, even um, oppressive climate for expressing your true beliefs. And uh, that is actually very difficult to handle. I'm sure that you experience that in your friendships and in workplaces, and that that has a suppressive or oppressive effect upon your free expression of your faith and how you live it out. I think as well of the failings of our leaders. So we may not have leaders who are imprisoned for the gospel, but we've had leaders who've been um, scandalized, sometimes or very often rightly so, and that has a, a, a very deep effect upon us as Christians because we think, well, who then can we trust? And where is where's the power of the gospel if even our leaders fail to live up to its standards? And that I would never want to underestimate the impact of that. And it seems to me that the news around these things has only gathered a pace in the last 10 to 15 years and has a very deep impact upon me personally as I've looked around the scene at large. I think also that we're increasingly fearful. There's increased cowardice, isn't there, among Christians, a hesitance or reticence to wear our faith out there. Just as Paul said to me, do not be ashamed, said to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel or of me, its prisoner. You know what that temptation to feel ashamed is, don't you? You know why you might want to hide, as Christ said, hide it under a bushel, hide your faith under a bushel, keep it hidden from sight, keep it secret. The sense increasingly of being in exile. We could go on. All I'm trying to say is, although the circumstances aren't exactly the same as what the Ephesian Christians were facing, a leader in prison, the temptation to discouragement and despair was, is just as powerful for us now as it was for them then. And so each of the encouragements that Paul gives here in order to bolster their sense of faith and confidence in the direction that God is, is, is charting for the church, each of them applies to us now. And it's as important now that you grasp these things that he's saying for the sake of your own uprightness, boldness, and confidence as a Christian as it was for them. I know that some of you are not Christians. Perhaps something I say will resonate with you because you'll begin to see that the Christian faith is not for losers. There there are many religions that have been obliterated and wiped out from the face of the earth, more or less, aren't there? And none of us are queuing up round corners to, to, to find places of worship devoted to the Nordic gods like Thor and Odin or, or the Egyptian gods. We can say, look, they're, they're clearly been debunked. They're, they're nothing. And if you think in your heart of hearts, well, that's the direction for the church, it's very unlikely, isn't it, that you'll want to give your life to Jesus. And I hope that something of what I say tonight will convince you to rethink that because I don't believe that's true in the slightest. But I, most of what I have to say will be an encouragement to those of you who are Christian to really 
put steel in your bones, to give you a sense of a strong backbone about the faith that we profess. That strengthens your witness. It strengthens your devotion to Jesus. It strengthens your devotion to his church. It has those effects when you allow the same confidence that Paul had to seep into you. So pay attention carefully. We're going to closely follow what he has to say here. And I want to show you how he points to three things as encouragements to them. He points to the message itself of the gospel. He points to them the ministry that he and others had and the ministries that God raises up. And he also then points to the movement, the church itself, and shows that there is a profound power at work behind all of these. The first thing he talks about then is the message. This comes across right at the start. He's just mentioned that he's in prison. And then from verse 2, he begins to speak about the, how the message is out there. He says, assuming you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Now, what is the fear that he's speaking to here? The fear is that very often in history, you'll notice that when great leaders emerge, and Paul was a great leader by any measure, when great leaders emerge and movements gather in their wake, sometimes Killing or removing the leader from influence can have the effect of killing the movement. And the risk that I think he's speaking to here is the fear that the church could not succeed without him. Because he'd had an extraordinary and outsized impact. Now, in addressing this issue, one thing that Paul does not do is in any way diminish his contribution. He knows that God has used him. And this is where he keeps drawing attention to his own impact. He says, he talks in verse 2 of the stewardship of grace that was given to me. How, and then verse 3, how it was made known to me. Verse 4, when you, when you uh, read this, you can perceive my insight. So there's no way in which he's wanting in any way to discredit what God had done through him. He had played a significant part. There's no doubting. We're still benefiting from the grace that was given to Paul because we still read his letters and they change our lives. But the real thrust of what he's saying here is this. He's saying that something has happened. There's a before and an after. I was part of it, he says, along with others. But what has happened is that this gospel that was once a mystery which is an old way of saying something that was kept hidden, has now been unopened and unearthed and displayed for all the world to see. It's out in the open, and you cannot put the toothpaste back in the tube. That's fundamentally what he's saying here, though I offer the analogy that he doesn't. He says it here in a few ways. He says in verse 3 that the mystery was made known to me by revelation. It wasn't known, now it is. He says, verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. It's now been made known, in other words. And then he, he rounds it off by saying, listen, this is the message. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is the good news, friends, that all of you, when nothing outside of Christ 
But you have heard the message of his love for you, his willingness to die for you in order to reconcile you to the Father, bring you into the family, call you the children of God, and give you status and dignity and life, eternal life. He's saying none of that was known or understood before God began to speak to us. Now it's known, and now it's understood. And his point, I think, is this. He's saying, I may be in prison, but this is a new era that we're living in. And now that the message is out, everything has changed. He's saying, you can imprison me or any of the leaders of this movement, but you cannot imprison an idea. Let me use an analogy here for you that helps you just lock this in your minds. You remember how... Back in 2006, the news was full of um, this great event that had taken place in which a man called Julian Assange had gotten hold of reams and reams and reams of U.S. intelligence documents and published them in the WikiLeaks uh, information release. And ever since then until now, because the issue has not been resolved... That man has been chased and pursued by the authorities, the U.S. authorities, in order to attempt to extradite him, bring him to the United States to face charges of espionage. He spent time in the Ecuadorian embassy uh, for some years. More recently, he's been under an imprisonment here in the U.K. in Belmarsh Prison, and that's where he is to this day, as far as I know. And uh, all that time, the attempt has been, we need to lock up Julian Assange, we need to deal with him, and he needs to face justice. But in some ways, to anyone like you or I looking in from the outside, we can see that it's a moot point. The damage was already done. You can lock up Assange, but it doesn't stop the release of the information, because once it's out into the world, there's very little you can do to quell or to squash or to hide what was released. It's out there. And Paul had the same conviction about the gospel. He says it a little bit more explicitly and clearly when he's writing to Timothy. Because he says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 9, he says, he speaks about, he says, he speaks about the gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But then he says, but the word of God is not bound. As Christians, this conviction rests on a belief that the gospel has an inherent power. If you've become a follower of Jesus, you've experienced this. You heard for the first time that God loves you. And it began to melt your cold or hard heart. You heard of the fact that Christ was willing to die for you and to be a, a substitutionary atonement for you on the cross, and you began to feel hope that the guilt and shame that you carry with you in life can be taken away. You heard that Christ was raised from the dead, and you began to feel a sense of a certain hope that death is not the end, that when you die and are buried in the ground, that that won't be the end of your life, but that you can have a certain hope of resurrection. And once these ideas have taken root in your heart, it doesn't really matter what happens to, to, to leaders and to the, ch the church even because the gospel's in you. 
and it's alive in you, the message cannot so easily be crushed or squashed or destroyed. This is one of the great driving, powerful convictions in the New Testament. It comes through in Jesus' own teaching when he describes the power of the gospel like this. He uses a parable. He says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So it's a farming analogy. A farmer goes out, throws seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. It's the miracle within the seed. So the farmer did his bit, but ultimately the seed, the seed takes care of itself. And then he says, the earth produces by itself. That little phrase is from a Greek word that, from which we get the word automatically. The, the earth produces automatically. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. And Jesus is saying, this is the power of the gospel. Once a seed is out there, there's life and there's nothing you can do to reverse its power. It's changing individuals and it's spreading. It's not only that it's alive in and of itself, but the word of God has a potency and a power to multiply and cannot be so easily squashed as much as many powers have attempted to do so through history. It was faced in the first century. The, the emperor and the authorities were, were very much on a <laughs> determined course to put Christianity out of action. It began, in fact, with Paul and his Jewish comrades. He was one of the ones who had attempted to squash it until he realized it was true. And it got hold of him in the deepest parts of himself and turned his life around. But then he faced the same persecution except then from the Roman emperors. And ever since then until now, there has not been any time in history when the Christian faith has not been opposed, but the problem is that the message is too powerful and too true. There's a wonderful quote in the film Inception, which I, I think captures this idea, in which Leonardo DiCaprio's character Cobb, speaking to Saito, who is uh, played by Ken Watanabe, he says to him, he asks him the question, what is the most resilient parasite? A bacteria, a virus, an intestinal worm, an idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold in the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks right in there somewhere. And to my mind, Paul is saying something like that here about the gospel. It was a mystery, he says. It wasn't known. It wasn't understood. It was kept obscure until now. And now that it's been revealed and brought into the open, he says, and we'll bring you back to that last verse, so I ask you not to lose heart. The gospel's out and nothing can stop it. Friends, our calling as believers, we, we can't control events, we can't control governments, we can't control the direction or force or power or success of the church, but one thing we can do is be those who carry the message in us faithfully and transmit it to others. The message has power. The second thing he does is he talks about the ministers. Now, He's mentioned the holy apostles and prophets in the fifth verse. He said it's been the message, the mystery was revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. He's speaking there of a generation of men who had grown up reading the Hebrew scriptures in which there were all these prophecies and allusions to the coming of the Messiah. But exactly how God was going to work out his salvation plan for the world was kept somewhat obscure. 
It wasn't clear until Christ died and rose from the dead. And then their minds were set spinning and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And suddenly, like the sparks in their brains connecting, they began to see things afresh. They saw it for the first time. They were reading the same scriptures, but suddenly they came to life and they understood them with new eyes. And they began to see the gospel. And then they started to preach it powerfully in the face of opposition, with a willingness to be persecuted, put to death, put in prison. And of course, remember that 11 out of the 12 apostles were martyred for this stuff. So this is stuff that they began, that gripped them from the inside. And then Paul talks about his own ministry. And he says in verse 7 of this gospel, I was made a minister or servant or deacon according to the gift of God's grace, which is given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden in, for ages in God who created all things. Now, why is he drawing attention to this ministry? Again, the concern here is, what happens if you lose heart? I'm in prison. And he's already told us, look, the message is powerful and it's out in the open. There's nothing you can do to squash that. But the church of God needs leaders, doesn't it? It needs leaders. It needs people ready to to take that baton from each generation and and be the the primary communicators of the word of God and to preach the gospel. And by any reckoning, Paul was one of the most important and powerful of those leaders he's ever lived. He had an intellect that was rarely matched. it It was also accompanied by a heart that was zealous and passionate and fiery and full of zeal and love for the Lord. He, he felt a deep compassion for people. It's a very rare combination in one, one person to have all those gifts and abilities. He was a pioneer, but he was also a builder. There was so much that you can admire about the man. And the concern was, well, if he's in prison, what hope do we have? And it's a concern I feel in my own soul when I survey the Christian scene here in the UK right now. If I think back to not so long back, just a few decades back, you could look around the Christian scene and say that there were prominent leaders leading movements and directing things for the good of the church. You go back through the history books and you can see over the last four or five centuries just story after story of men and women of God who's taken a stand on the faith and and had courageous, bold stance that has given grace to the church to grow and to have mighty impact in society. And I look across the Christian scene right now and I see a huge deficit. It's possible that I have a, a uniquely jaded and cynical perspective, in which case I need to get before the Lord and have him deal with that in my own soul. But I look across the scene and I see much weakness among us as leaders, much compromise, much unwillingness to stand on the truth, a mouse-like voice when it comes to declaring the gospel. And it concerns me deeply. It concerns me deeply. But this is the very fear that Paul's speaking to here. How? Well, again, not by denying his own unique contribution and leadership. He knew that he had received a stewardship or a responsibility to, to be a pioneer in bringing the gospel outside Israel and into the Gentile world, all 
the non-Jewish world outside of Israel. And that he had faithfully done. And he's not ashamed to draw attention to the fact that that was the grace, the gift of God given to him. But in saying this, he's always pointing beyond himself to the God over him who had raised him up. You, you look carefully at what he's saying here. Each of his phrases, he's not trying to claim credit for himself, for the massive impact and the effect that he'd had in and through his ministry. He's saying it's all God. And it comes through clearly. Just look at your Bibles. You see it there in the second verse when he says that this was a stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. In the seventh verse, he repeats that when he says that he was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. So if this was given to him by God, then God possesses the grace to begin with. He's temporarily given grace to Paul to be a preacher of the gospel, but ultimately that commission comes from God. He says it also in how he says that God raised him up. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister, made a servant. In other words, I wasn't self-appointed, and I didn't, wasn't just like cream rising to the top because of my giftedness or abilities or whatever else he could have drawn attention to. He's saying, God made me into the minister that I am. Then he says that actually he wasn't even qualified to begin with. He says in verse 8, I'm the very least of all the saints, and though I'm the very least, he says, this grace was given. That sounds like false humility coming from a man like Paul, doesn't it? To say, I'm the least of all the saints, even though we know of his mighty exploits, his prayer life, his intellectual, theological grasp of, all, of, of the plan of God, all these things. But I think he felt it in the deepest, truest sense about himself. It's something he mentions repeatedly in his letters. Because as much as God had done a great work in and through him, he could never forget what he was. The fanatical hounder of Christians, the, the one who had wanted to put to death the church, to kill it, to extinguish its light completely. That's what he was. He says in 1 Timothy, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. And a little bit further on, he says that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He also says that everything he has accomplished has been by the power of God. It's there in verse 7 when he says that God's grace was given to me by the working of his power. So he could look at the churches started, individuals saved, the movement that, has been, that had caught light across the, the Roman world. And he could say all of it was the work of the Spirit. Now, put all that together and understand what he's saying. He's saying this was given to me by God. God made me a minister. I wasn't qualified. And everything that I have accomplished is a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power at working through me. What's he saying? He's saying, it's not about me. It's about the God who raised me up. And if God raised me up, then my imprisonment doesn't matter because God is the one who made me what I am. And God is as able of, as, of raising up men and women to serve him now as he was then. And you, you put a Paul in prison and God will raise up a hundred in his place. And this is a corrective to me, at least, that we must never fixate upon the charisma or the quality 
the stature of leaders around us as though that's the thing upon which this all hinges. It's God. And Jesus gave us very clear instructions on this front. He said that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up laborers to go into his harvest field. If you want to make something an aspect of daily prayer in your prayer life, when you get on your knees before Jesus, ask him to raise up harvesters. Because every generation of leaders gets taken out somewhere or other, eventually by death. But the Lord of the harvest doesn't stop. He's sending his people into the field to get to work. And I want to also just say, by the way, you know, when I was a young boy, I felt like the Lord put his hand on my shoulder in a way that for me was unforgettable and undeniable and speak to me and call me to the work of ministry. I was only 10 years old at the time and I set my gaze on it. I'm not saying that in any way to draw attention to myself as though that's something great because I just think it was the Lord. If I was a bit older, I probably would have doubted it was him. But because I was young and naive, I said, okay, I'll do that. Not knowing what it would cost. Not knowing how difficult or how unqualified I would feel. When the Holy Spirit takes a hold of you, gives you a sense of calling, commissioning, know that he's in at work in you. Obey. Obey. Don't lose heart, Paul's saying. The message is out. The ministry was always God's power. And he adds one final thing. He talks about the movement. So, so far we've sought to understand these encouragements to the church. That there is this powerful message at work and that God can raise up ministers and servants of the gospel wherever he chooses. But there is still no denying that some leaders just feel irreplaceable, don't they? I was thinking about the lines from Eminem's track from 2002, Without Me. He says, now this looks like a job for me, so everybody just follow me, because we need a little controversy because it feels so empty without me. And of course, I don't know what that says about Eminem or his ego or whatever else. I'll leave that for another day. But what it, do, it resonates with us. We understand, don't we, that there are certain individuals who seem to carry with them Charisma, presence, that they can fill a room and their absence seems to drain the room of any power, force, or energy. Perhaps at the back of his mind, Paul is really aware that his imprisonment might have that kind of sapping, discouraging effect upon these Christians. That's why he's addressing it now. And what does he say to that? What, what is they to put their hope in if he was in prison, and if other leaders and pastors were to be imprisoned. Now, the answer is, he says, look at yourselves. Look at what God has done in you. Look at the church. Now, that's an odd thing for us to do, because most of the time, I think we as Christians have become experts at seeing our failings. We see our failings as individuals, 
We're conscious of the shame we carry, of the flaws and the weaknesses and the shortcomings that, that, that we carry that make us feel unworthy. And we're even more conscious of the shortcomings of the church. There's not a week that goes by when someone doesn't let me know their views on those things. And of course, this is just, this is just the reality. So as much as the world might hate us, we already hate ourselves more. And of course, what happens if we have such, a, such a, a weakened, diminished view of ourselves and of the church of Jesus Christ? Well, it's going to have the effect of crushing our witness and our sense of, of, of confidence in the gospel because we'll feel increased embarrassment and shame about this thing that, that we do on Sundays and about this community that we, we identify with. And what does Paul say to this? He says in verse 10 that the gospel was brought to light so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he had realized he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through the church God has made a decision as confusing as it might be to us. He made a plan in which he was going to display his manifold or multicolored wisdom through this ramshackle organization, the church. And not only that, but he has displayed that wisdom to, who, does he, who is it to? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, the angels and the demons. So they can see something even if you can't. They can see what an extraordinary, world-changing thing the church was. They knew it then, right in the earliest days of the church, and that's why the devil's been in opposition to it ever since. And they know it now, even if you underestimate her and her power. And he says, all of this, all of this was according to the eternal purpose that he is realizing Christ Jesus our Lord. It was God's plan from before the foundation of the world, the church. And it was realized or accomplished or guaranteed when Jesus died and rose from the dead. That was the birth of this thing. Paul's infatuation with and delight in and love for and devotion to the church didn't blind him to her flaws. And it didn't mean that he wanted us to walk around with inflated egos as though we could somehow be arrogant in ourselves. Elsewhere in his letter, he's at pains to stress that whatever good you experience in church and whatever grace you've experienced through the gospel as believers, it's not because we're anything special. On the contrary, he, he in fact is quite insulting at times about Christians. He says, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish. He chose the stupid people. He chose them to shame the wise. He chose the weaklings in order to shame the strong. He chose what's low and despised. You're feeling good, aren't you? In the world, even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So we recognize that the church in herself is nothing, less than nothing. And perhaps that was more obvious then because so many of the people who were coming to faith were of the lowest strata in society, discovering dignity and purpose and, and a sense of sonship and adoption within the family of God that changed how they saw themselves. But it wasn't in order to then create a kind of reflexive arrogance as though we're better than others we always carry with us a sense of weakness and smallness, but 
of the greatness of God's grace that he's called us. And what he's trying to say, I believe here, what he's saying to us here when he says that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. I think he's bringing our attention back to everything that he said in the second chapter about the display of the gospel. There he told us two big truths. He told us about how the gospel changes individuals, and that was in chapter 2 from verse 1 onwards when he says that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, and then he describes the grace of God at work in your life and how you've been set apart, called, and, and given a new uh, task and mission in life, the works that God has called you to. So you went from nothing, from less than nothing, from shame, from sin, from a wretched existence with a heart that nurtured hatred against God and was slave to your own desires to now being a child of God. And it wasn't you, it was the gospel. The gospel of individual transformation, you can describe it in that way. And then the next half of that chapter is the gospel of community. How God saves us from every different people, nation, language, tribe, and tongue, and brings us into the experience of being one new man in Christ, being united under Christ, because he's our Lord and we're his people. This is the church, and she is growing and filling the earth. And displaying to the world this multicolored wisdom of God, even in our very faces. And when you put those two things together, the fact that the gospel changes people like nothing else on earth can change people. Dragging people, lifting them out from the gutter and placing them in a place of dignity and personal transformation. And the gospel brings people together like nothing else on earth. When you put those two truths together, and you just... Turn down the dial of cynicism in your mind for a moment and look with objective eyes. You can say the church is a miracle. I, I'm a miracle. What God has done in me is a miracle. And the fact that we're here together is a miracle. It has to be the work of the Holy Spirit and it could only be accomplished or realized by what Jesus did upon the cross. And nothing on earth even comes close to that. Nothing. Every attempt of man to reproduce these, this power, whether the power of individual transformation or the, the desire to bring people together in unity, it always fails. May see temporary success or limited success, but ultimately it always fails. The gospel does not fail, and it has not failed, and it is marching forward. So, friend... I want you to just reflect on your own heart for a second. If you've been nurturing a kind of a weakness of outlook or a jaded perspective or discouragement about the work of God in the world and the work of God in and through the church, that will be reflected in your posture. It will be reflected in your posture towards God's work, it will mean that you'll hold back your time, your talents, your energy, your resources. You don't want to go all in on something that's, that's not doing well. And you may never have really thought about it like that, but might, that might be the reason you're not going all in. I hope that you can catch something of the heartbeat of this man. He laid it all out there through suffering, through a willingness to, to be imprisoned and to know in his heart of hearts it's all entirely worth it. 
And all the time he was, he was a fire starter, trying to light fires in the hearts of others, convincing them that what he had given his life for was worth it. Because ultimately Christ will triumph. To echo his own words in, in Philippians 2, where Paul says that, that Christ has received the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That was Paul's deepest conviction. Lock me up. It doesn't matter. Jesus is going to reign and he's going to rule. What a passion that can ignite in your heart when you believe that. What devotion it will call for when you know that this gospel cannot be quenched or killed. When a minister's can be taken out, but God will raise up thousands. When the church is going to rise up as something magnificent to the glory of the Savior who saved us, not for our own glory. Oh, friends, I ask you, he says, not to lose heart. Don't grow cynical. Don't allow your criticisms to affect your whole outlook. Don't be weak in faith. Don't be ashamed or embarrassed. Don't lose heart, he says, over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. This is our honor that we be shamed and lambasted and criticized and misunderstood and opposed and persecuted. It's to our honor because, friends, we bear the truth, the truth about Jesus. Jesus.